Lord. Praise Yahweh. Yahweh. Say Yahweh. Or no way. Say Yahweh. Or no way. Amen. Yahweh or no way. It's about he. Not me. Amen. It's he. He sits upon the throne. Yeah. Thank you. Wonderful praise this morning. Wonderful. Wonderful worship. This, this church is a church of worship. Enter his gates with thanksgiving into his courts with praise. Be thankful unto him and bless his holy name. Amen. And everybody encounters, everybody is involved. Nobody sings like the English. Really. Yeah. Well, yeah. I'm talking about just that, just that the lifting of the voices. There's an anointing. There has been since the day of the Wesleys, the Charles Wesleys, the great, you know, uh, hymn writers in uh, England. There's, a, there's always been an anointing for hundreds of years over this nation for, for the song of the Lord. Amen? Song of the Lord. It's amazing. Um, how many ever heard of Charles Wesley? Yeah. He was the brother of the famous preacher and, you know, uh, John Wesley. Charles Wesley, the great hymn writer, he wrote one of his thousands of songs. He wrote a song called, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my Redeemer's praise. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my Redeemer's praise. It's a great hymn. You know what I feel that he was doing in that song? You know what I feel in the inspired that song? I feel his spirit man was crying out for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. For those thousands of tongues that cannot be expressed with English to sing the Redeemer's praise. Oh, for a thousand, he was, I feel he was crying out for that experience that, that really, that, that he had not experienced. Did I say he wasn't filled with the Spirit? No, that's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying he was, I think in that song, he said, as many as hymns of, as I have written, thousands of hymns, but yet I still feel it's inadequate to sing my Redeemer's praise. He was crying out for that heavenly language of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And brother, you come up here right now, the one that got filled with the Holy Spirit last night? Yeah, come up here. It's a little testimony this morning. We had a couple uh, uh, gentlemen filled with the Holy Spirit last night. Now, uh, I'm gonna sweep my mouth now. Yeah, that's all right. That's all, now I'm not gonna get you to talk in tongues, because that's not. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So, um, what happened to you last night? I mean, the... I was really filled. One minute I was there, next minute I was gone. I was just seeing <laughs> my eyes were closed. You just see this red fire, and it was like a oh, it was rushing through me. And it all took over, and when I sort of come round, is that what they say? I had to come round. I was sort of filled, and I was dancing there. And... <laughs> 
What was coming out your mouth? Uh, I hope it was all good. <laughs> yeah. Well, give us a little, give us a little uh, info about uh, the, the, did you, um, you know, uh, you were flowing pretty good in the unknown tongue last night. I was, I was to be honest with you, that's the first time it's ever happened. That's the first time it's ever happened. Yeah. Yeah. So. <clears throat> I've always thought I was, you know, felt the presence of the Holy Spirit, but I've never really been filled like that, you know. That was yeah. A new experience for me, and it was yeah. good. Yeah. Yeah. Would you recommend that? Oh, yeah. I recommend <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They should sell it in cans. <laughs> he said they should, they should sell it in cans, yeah. But you were really flowing. You know, I mean, the tongue is just uh, a manifestation of the baptism in the Holy Spirit. You know, there's more to getting filled with the Holy Spirit than speaking in the unknown language, you know. It's power to witness, power to love, power for demonstration, and the power of the Holy Ghost. So the tongue is just an outward sign, you know, of the filling of the Holy Spirit. And like I share, you don't get the shoe without the tongue. You know, you go buy a pair of shoes, you get the tongue with it, don't you? you know, the shoe would look funny without a tongue with it. Right? So when you get the baptism of the Holy Spirit, you get the tongue with it. Amen? You get the tongue with the Holy Spirit. So uh, that's great, brother. So God bless you. And we also um, had an Anglican gentleman here last night uh, from about 40 miles away from here. There's uh, several of them here last night with a few of the ladies that used to go to this church here. And um, so uh, they started a new church, and, uh, and he uh, got filled with the Holy Spirit last night. And really flowed in the, the prayer language, you know, that thousands of tongues to sing our Redeemer's praise. So that still amazes me as one of the most awesome signs of the presence of the Holy Spirit in anything. I mean, I, you know, I've seen, you know, healings and everything, we've seen healings, but still the baptism of the Holy Spirit for someone who were, who, sometimes newly even saved, can all of a sudden be there and just get filled with the power of the Holy Ghost. When you get saved, the Holy Spirit comes in you. But there's an additional where the Holy Spirit comes up on you. Jesus said the Holy Spirit is with you. Okay, that's before uh, he died on the cross, before he rose again from the dead, because no one had the Holy Spirit in, in them as an ever-abiding presence until Messiah died, Messiah rose, and Messiah sent the Holy Spirit. You know, that's why Jesus said in John, it's expedient that I go away, because if I don't go away, the Comforter will not come. But if I go away, I will send him, not it, I will send him unto you, and he will teach you all things, guide you in all truth, and he will abide with you forever, you see. And uh, so when you're born again and ask Christ in your heart, the Holy Spirit comes inside of you, because he that has not the Spirit of Christ is none of his, it says. If you have not the Spirit of Christ, you don't belong to Christ, okay? So when we are born again, we're sealed by the Holy Spirit. Sealed how long? Until the day of redemption. We're sealed, but there's a difference in being sealed and being filled. See, when you're sealed, you know, with the Holy Spirit on conversion, on salvation. But the baptism of the Holy Spirit is when the Holy Spirit comes upon you in power. Jesus said he's with you, okay? 
after he rose from the dead, but he said, they shall be in you. He's with you. He's alongside of you, like I'm alongside of this pulpit. Right? The word with there comes from the word para, P-A-R-A. All right? It means alongside of. That's where we get our word parable, parable. Uh, just a little teaching on this here for a second. Uh, parable comes from two words. It comes para blue. Para blue. Blue means to pitch, toss, or throw. Para means alongside of. So parable means to throw alongside of. And Jesus spoke in parables. He would, he would throw alongside of his word uh, a visual picture so they could understand it better. You see, so he said the Holy Spirit is with you. Para, he's alongside of you, but he shall be in you. Okay, and in John chapter 20, when he had died and he rose again from the dead, he appeared unto them and he said, fear not. And he, he what? Breathed on them, John 20, said, receive ye, right? Receive ye. Everyone. Everybody. You're not just for a select few. He said, receive ye, plural, okay? And he breathed on them the Holy Spirit. Now, what do you think they received? He said, receive ye the Holy Spirit. What do you think they received? Yeah, God doesn't waste his breath. He breathed on them. He doesn't waste his breath. Okay, he breathed upon them and said, receive ye the Holy Spirit. What did they receive? They received the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was with them. Okay, but when Christ died and rose again and appeared to them, he came in them. That's where I feel that group was born again or converted but in Luke chapter 24 he told those same ones that he breathed upon to receive the Holy Spirit he said now you go wait for the promise of the Father to come upon you upon you okay I am alongside or with this pulpit right I am in these clothing but my Bible is up on that pulpit, you see. So in Acts chapter 2, when they were all together in one accord, there came a sound like a rushing mighty wind from heaven, and it filled all the room where they were sitting. And suddenly, okay, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and tongues of fire set upon each of them. How many of them? Each of them. Say Mary. The mother of Jesus was one of those 120. Okay, so tongues of fire set upon Mary. I always tell people Mary was never Catholic. She's always been Pentecostal. <laughs> yeah, and that's not knocking the Catholics. There's a lot of Catholics that pray in tongues more than Pentecostals. Let me say it again. Mary was there, the mother of Christ. She got filled with the Spirit. Tongues of fire set upon each of them and she spoke in tongues it was good enough for her it's good enough for me all 120 of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and they all spake in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance now notice you that scripture I shared this with him last night this other gentleman last night it says they all began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave the utterance who began to speak in tongues they all who gave the utterance? The Holy Spirit. But notice, they started speaking first. 
When you get filled with the Holy Spirit, and there's people in this room that you can be filled with the Spirit today if you never have with your prayer language. Okay? But when you get filled with the Holy Spirit, you cannot stand there like this. Well, move me if you can, God. He won't. Yeah? You must begin to speak by faith, then he will put the utterance there. They begin to speak in tongues as the Holy Spirit gave the utterance. But they began to speak first. And the tongues came, you see, because they started speaking. They were no longer speaking the common language. They all spoke in various tongues and all kinds of different languages. Yeah? So, tongues are for self-edification to build you up to prophesy. It says, I would that you all speak in tongues, but rather that you may prophesy. And people like to take that verse and, and misquote it. The literal Greek there, and, and I got this from way back about 30 years ago from a well-known preacher here in England, Bob Mufford. Okay, I didn't agree with all he taught, but I did agree with this little nugget. He says, here's a literal there. I would that you all speak in tongues in order that you may prophesy. Isn't that awesome? I would that you all speak in tongues in order that you may prophesy. In other words, tongues is a builder up to give you the faith and the boldness to prophesy. To lay hands on the sick. To speak a word of prophecy. To have a word of knowledge. A word of wisdom. See, tongues, always say, he who speaks in an unknown tongue edifies himself. Now, some people like to quote it like this. Oh, he who speaks in an unknown tongue, they just edify themselves. The most selfish things. They, that's why they like to quote that scripture. Oh, you speak in tongues, you just work. Oh, you want to just edify yourself. It says, he who speaks in an unknown tongue edifies himself or builds himself up. Builds himself up. Building yourself up in the most holy faith, it says in the word of God. Praying in the spirit. So in tongues, we built ourselves up to do the business. It's a self-builder upper to do the business. Now, there will be times when we have the corporate worship where we're all singing in the spirit, which does not need interpretation. But yet, if someone would stand up and speak in an unknown tongue, you are to have the wisdom that there is somebody in the body here that has the gift of interpretations. Okay? Let all things be done decently and in what? Order. All oh, people love the order thing. Oh, they love the order, but they don't get nothing done. They love the order thing. Oh, we got to be decently in order. But they're not getting anything done. It said, let all things be done first. Then as you're getting it done, let it be done decently in order or scripturally, right? But let's get it done first, you know, and uh, that's the key. And when you're yielding to the Lord to get it done, there is going to be mistakes. New Testament has given us that grace. That's why the Bible said judge prophecy. It says, let one speak and let another judge. 
Because God has given us that place to grow in the gifts of the Spirit in the New Testament. You have a false word in the Old Testament, they just line you up and stone you. Aren't you glad they don't do that today? I mean, there won't be many people left in the prophetic movement. <laughs> a so-called prophetic movement. Yeah. But God has given us that room to grow in the gifts of the Spirit. We've got to get things done. You know, not be so predictable, knowing exactly who's going to give a word of prophecy, about what time when the music comes down, and about, you know, when the music comes down, then you're going to have the shandai, shandai, shandai. Okay, pretty predictable. Then they, you know, we got to quit being predictable. The gifts of the Spirit are signs and wonders to the unbeliever. The Bible said tongues, the gift of tongues. Oh, I don't want to bring my friends to that church. They pray in tongues. They sing in tongues down there. I'm not going to bring them. The Bible said tongues are a sign to the unbeliever. Unbelievers don't have no problem with it. You know, people that are religious have more problems with tongues than them unbelievers do. The Bible said it's a sign to the unbelievers. You see? So uh, praise the Lord. So Jesus said he's with you. He shall be in you, but the baptism of the Holy Spirit, you may have been saved here today. Well, if you're saved, not may have been saved, you are saved. No maybes about it. Amen. You feel safe and secure in the finished work of Jesus Christ, and you are complete in him. You don't get any better than that. But yet, the baptism of the Holy Ghost is... A baptism, a power to be a witness for Christ. Amen. Because we're inadequate in ourselves. You know, and, um, and the Holy Spirit uh, can overcome any timidity. Doesn't matter whether you're introvert, extrovert, novert, you know, as long as you're a convert. Amen. Okay, you can have the power of the Holy Ghost and be an effective witness. For Jesus Christ. Amen. So if you're here today, we'll have an altar open for that. Amen. And nobody's going to just, you're not going to get no Pentecostal firing squad on you. We're just going to pray and God's going to do it. It's so simple last night, wasn't it? We didn't grunt, groan, shout. Now, th that may happen too. I mean, but, you know, it's just easily to be entreated. You know, the Holy Spirit is gentle as a dove. But there are times he will roar like a lion. You see. He will roar like a lion. And a lot of folks, they want the gentleness of the dove, the stroke, the coo of the dove. But when he starts roaring in their lives, they get a little bit afraid of that. You see. He roars like a lion. The Holy Spirit does as well. So we have to embrace the roar the lion and the dove. Amen. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Presence of God is here. Yeah, I never have come here where I did not encounter the presence of God. And uh, I always get a good little drink when I come here of the Holy Spirit. Two rivers meeting together. Amen. See a lot of new faces. Great stuff. Yeah, good turnout last night and this wonderful turnout this morning. Hallelujah. 
Thank you, Jesus. We're going to continue on a little bit before we have all you know ministry service. Uh, we started talking about the subject last night, falling from grace. Falling from grace. And um, we were uh, preaching on and teaching on there's such a misunderstanding on what falling from grace is. I had a hand raised last night here. And... Um, How many related to falling from grace? How many's ever heard that statement, falling from grace? You ever heard that statement? Lift your hand, you've heard that statement as a Christian. Oh, falling from grace. Um, and I would say 95% of the time, everybody relates that to somebody in sin, okay, who has fallen from grace. You see? And it's the farthest thing away from what the Bible says. Not even close to what the Bible says. And we looked at uh, Galatians, if you want to turn there. This is sort of a continuation from last night. In the book of Galatians chapter 5. And um, find my scripture here. And verse 4. You want to put that on board? Galatians chapter 5, verse 4. I'm contending for the faith of Jesus Christ. Jude says that we are contend for the faith that was delivered unto us. I don't have to defend the faith. You see, we don't defend it. We contend for the faith. Truth does not need to be defended. Okay, and most people that are in, the, in a place of defending something, it's normally error, okay, that they're defending. Truth stands on its own two legs, you see. Truth does not need me as a mighty defender of the truth, you see. Jesus says, I am the truth. And... Um, and truth is found in the light, not the gray area. My wife preached a message on that. She says, um, you find truth in the light of God's scripture, in the spirit. Truth is found in the light. Compromise is a gray area. What can I do and get away with it? Or how far can I go? Or what is permissible? Well, the Bible says all things are permissible. But not all things edify. All things are lawful or permittable, but not all things built up. You see? And what he's saying there, don't take a chance to lose your liberty in Christ. All right? By yielding to something that is permissible, but if you did yield to it, you may come under bondage of that thing and all of a sudden not, be, and not walk in liberty of Jesus Christ. Freedom. You see? But Jesus Christ dealing, oh, getting, 
dealing uh, uh, away from the law, okay, he did not want any law to be any part of the gospel, the new covenant. That's why he kept the law himself to the letter. He did not defile or break the law at any point. The Old Testament law, the law of Moses, he kept it to the letter. And he kept it on my behalf because I had no ability to keep it. And even if I did, it's, it, could, it still could not bring salvation and justification. Okay? Because somewhere along the line, I would break one law. And I, if I break one, I break all. It's like hanging from a cliff on a, on a, on a chain. Okay? If the middle link broke, you would fall. If the maybe second to the bottom link broke, you would fall. If the top link broke, you would fall. If any one of those links that you're holding on to, which represents the law, if you break one, you fall. It's all, you've broken them all. We can never be saved by the law. And that's what Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, and most of the epistles are about. And the greatest criticizers of grace are people that are, are trying to keep the law to please God. I got to do this. I can't do that. I shouldn't do that. Oh, I did that. Oh, what am I going to do? Try to get better. All law, law, law. It's a miserable Christian existence. Miserable. It's a life without the power of the Spirit. It's a life without being led of the Spirit, trying to keep moral law to please God and to be accepted by God once you have become a born-again Christian. Paul had that experience. Romans chapter 7. I believe he was speaking of a person that... The experience the grace of God, but somewhere along the line, reverted back to the law, probably from the peer pressure, okay, of his contemporaries, you see. But he said, hey, I'm helpless. Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of sin and death? You know, the, the law, all the law did is show me how sinful I really was. It made sin become more sinful. And it's made me totally helpless. Only love for Jesus Christ can constrain us, compel us, and empower us. Love for Jesus Christ to live a life, okay, that we feel is pleasing to God. We cannot do it by keeping rules and regulations. The love of Christ constrains me. I love him. Because he first loved me. Yeah. See, God loved first. While we were yet sinners, God loved. And spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not now with him freely, freely, right? Say freely. freely. Give us all things. Not by keeping a moral code. You see? Only the love of Christ will keep you 
from what we know as the sins, the big sins, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, you know, and, and adultery and all that kind of stuff. And, but, uh, but there's a lot of other sins, all right? And what the, what the Bible really, uh, covetousness, God really majors on, you know, covetousness is the root of all sin. I want that. And I'm going to have it. If it's another man's wife, I'm gonna, I want it. I'm coveting. If it's their money, I'm coveting. You know, uh, thou shalt not covet. But, but I can't. That's in the Ten Commandments. There's no way I cannot covet without loving Jesus and his presence in me. Because the eyes of men are never satisfied. It always wants more. You see, it always wants more. That's my name, M-O-O-R-E, more. I love that, my name for the move of God. More, Lord, more. Rodney, Rodney, more, Lord. Fill, fill, more, Lord, more. But here, look, look at Galatians 5. See what it says here. In the verse 4, Christ is, can we get that on the board? Is it possible? Galatians, I can't get it on the board. I'm sorry. All right. Listen close. This is the Word of God. Amen? How many believe this is the Word of God? Amen. That it is the infallible Word of God. Okay, now it's not the fourth person of the Trinity. Okay, but it is the infallible Word of God. Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, that's the Godhead. But this is the Word of the Godhead right here. Amen, in written form. And I think we got pretty good translation. Amen. And, uh, we're not going to split the hairs on the different interpretations, but, uh, but I think we got a pretty good translation here. The B-I-B-L-E. Christ has become of no effect unto you. Who? Whosoever of you that are justified by the law. You have fallen from grace. So that scripture that you hear, fallen from grace, you're only hearing one part of it. They always quote one part. The legalists always quote one part. Oh, they've fallen from grace. Oh, they were once saved, but they're not saved now. I mean, they, uh, you know, they came in and they were doing, but boy, they're back out there on drugs and alcohol and, you know, and prostitution. Uh, uh, they were once saved. Well, how do you know? How do you know they were? The Bible says they went out from us because they were not of us. And they proved they were not of us by going out from us. You see, you cannot base biblical doctrine on someone's flaky religious experience. You've got to stay with the word of God. But so many people try to base doctrine upon someone's experience. You do not base doctrine on physical or personal experience. You take it for what is written. Line up online. 
Here a little, there a little. You got to take the whole. Can't take isolated passages and try to make doctrines out of it. Oh, they were once saved, but they're not. I don't know if they were saved. If they're out there in habitual sin, if they were saved, believe me, God will bring them back. Okay? He will use others to speak into their lives. He will use the presence of his Holy Spirit. Okay? He'll use every resource to bring them and woo them back. Then if they don't respond to that, then God will use chastisements. God's last resort is chastisement. And Hebrews says, if they don't respond to chastisement, then they were illegitimate and no longer God, they were not gods in the first place. You see, if you don't eventually yield to God's chastening, okay, the rod of correction, the word of God, all right, if they don't yield to chastening, then they prove they weren't, didn't belong to God in the first place. So I'm not going to base my uh, salvation of being saved by grace uh, by being secured in Christ by someone else's experience. I don't care what kind of name they have. I don't care how many TV shows they had. Okay? I don't care how many jets they fly. You see, and that's not criticism of these things. All right? But you must base your belief upon the Word of God, not a Pandora's box of personal experience. Because the occultists are having all kinds of experiences. I mean, they're having all kinds of weird experiences. But are they biblical experiences? Absolutely not. So if we open up our lives for unscriptural experiences, who are we to say that the occultists are wrong? No. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Heaven and earth will pass away, all right? But the word of the Lord will never pass away. The word of God is the final story. And I'm sorry about the Book of Mormon for the Mormons. They thought they might add a little bit to it because of some phony baloney Moroni, you know, uh, you know, digging up a pair of glasses and, uh, you know, some tablets and coming up with the Book of Mormon because some demonic angel spoke to him. Well, folks, that's the craziest thing I ever heard in my life. But do I believe a demon spirit, uh, angel-like, could do that? I believe that. I believe an angel-like could plant some tablets, put some glasses there, and speak to some bozo, right, and, and start a religion. We got to stand on the Word of God. And I got saved in the Jesus movement, folks, 1972 in California. And I want to tell you, you know what the most precious thing was about that Jesus movement when millions of people were ushered into the kingdom of God, especially out there in Southern California? We would go to restaurants after Bible study or after service, and every Christian in that place had their Bibles in their arms, in their hands. Today it's iPhones, right? <laughs> I got iPhone. They had their Bibles with them. And we would sit, okay, and we would tip as well, okay? <laughs> yeah. But we would sit in those restaurants after Bible studies and just open the word, man, and just have fellowship. And, you know, in those early days, everybody had their Bible with them. Yeah. My wife is literally, she's lost her, her best Bible 
Um, but her fingerprints were literally engraved to the side of her Bible. You can literally see, even the one she has now, her fingerprints, you can see the marks engraved in the leather of her fingerprints where she would hold that Bible and preach on the streets or preach in the pulpit. Her, you know, I mean, that Bible, you know, it's, it's part of her, you see. And it would be nice if we could get back to those days. Now we say, oh, they think I'm trying to be spiritual if I carry my Bible. You know, and most people bring their iPhones to church and they act like they're, you know, but no, they're, you know, half of them are on Facebook. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know, I, I was preaching at uh, my home church there on a Friday night. Uh, used to be my home church there. And, um, and I said, God's going to do two miracles here today before we ever, you know, uh, start preaching. God's going to do two miracles the first miracle is that God's going to have you put your iPhone away for an hour. That'll be the first miracle. Okay? And you saw people tightening up, man. You almost saw people going to withdrawal. <laughs> they, could, yeah, they could be on their iPhone for, for an hour. And I said the second miracle, the worship team is going to come out of, the, out of the back room and hear the word of God. The worship team is going to come out of the back room and hear the word of God. Because worship teams in America, they have a habit of after they get done with the worship, they'll go off in the back room and sit out there and chit-chat during the word of God. I said, the worship team will come out of the back room. And it wasn't a couple minutes later, the side door opens, here comes the worship team. <laughs> <laughs> they, all, they all sat over there where they normally sit, you see. The Word of God, folks. Yeah, we got to get back to that love for the Word of God. So it says here, because you are trying to be made justified, okay, by the works of the law, you have fallen from grace. Now notice there, it doesn't even mention sin. It doesn't mention sin. You know the biggest sin in the church? Is people that are trying to be justified by the works of the law. That's the biggest sin in the church. And those are the ones that are judging everyone that maybe have weaknesses, that are maybe struggling in sin. The ones that are probably sinning the most, the justifiers by the works of the law, are the ones that are pointing the finger of the weaker vessels that may be struggling with sin. And they think they're doing a service. They're famous, gotta get right with God. How many are saved here? You really know that you're saved. Not a make-believer, okay, but a true believer. How many know you are saved? Let me see your hands. Huh? You know you're saved. Folks, you are right with God. You are right with God. What's the basis of, of us being right with God? Our behavior, our performance? No, our belief. The basis... Of me being right with God is my belief, my sincere belief that Jesus Christ died on a cross for my sins. He was buried and he rose again from the dead. That's what Paul said, first things. I deliver unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for your sins, that he was buried according to the scriptures, and that he rose again on the third day. He said that's the first thing. I mean, that's ABC. 
That's Jack ran up the hill. Yeah. They get a pail of water. That's kindergarten. That's first things. All right. And you cannot go on to maturity until you have a concrete, solid rock belief that what Christ did, okay, and your belief in that is what makes you right, not how much you read your Bible last week, not how many hours you prayed last week, all right, or how much you gave last week. No, it's that Jesus Christ paid the price to make me right because there's nothing I could give him to make me right. He took trash and he made treasures. You see, we were the pearl great price that the field was bought to get, to get the treasure out of the field. We were that treasure in the field that he bought. What did he buy? He bought the earth. Revelation talks about that. To take us out. A called out one. Got to get right with God. Hey, I did it for years. Got to get right. And just see the little weak sheep just being beaten and uh, condemned and guilt-ridden. I got to get right with God. You got to stop. You got to always, <clears throat> you see. Instead of teaching them, do you really love Jesus? Do you really believe that you're saved? All right, then here's what God has brought you out of into. You don't dwell on what was. You dwell on what Jesus brought them into. We're transformed out of darkness, out of, okay? That's a, that, that's a matter of fact. That's a done deal. He has transformed us out of darkness into the light of his dear son. You see? Now, we're in the world. We're not of the world. All right? You know? And as you walk through the world, your feet will get dirty. That's why Jesus washed your feet as that example. Peter says, you know, Jesus was washing feet. Peter said, when he, when he finally got it, he said, Lord, yeah, if that's the case, Lord, just clean all, wash all of me. Because <laughs> he got a revelation that, you know, that Jesus... You know, was washing us. That's why the Bible says that the water of the word washes us. You see, I am completely saved. I am eternally saved. I am securely saved, right? Because I'm a believer, not a make-believer. All right? And people are afraid of that word, eternal security. But what is it, Temporary? I mean, did Jesus mean eternal life? Yeah. How many of you ladies ever get a permanent? You ever had a permanent? When's the last permanent you had? <laughs> when was the last permanent you had? A couple years, three years, five years, ten years? Yeah. It wasn't a permanent. It was a temporary. <laughs> Because if it was permanent, it would still be there. <laughs> right? It was a temporary. When Jesus said, we receive 
the gift of eternal life that he would never leave us or forsake us. And when the Holy Spirit comes, he will abide with us forever. Did he mean temporarily when we blow it? Then all of a sudden he's going to pack his bags and leave? Or did he mean eternally? What did he mean? Are we questioning God's promise because of somebody's flaky experience? Did he mean eternal life? Did he die and raise again that we might have eternal life? Did he or didn't he? Are we justified by the resurrection or aren't we? And if we are, let's quit believing some of this hogwash that comes down the pike. People saying, oh, that's hyper grace, man. They're preaching hyper grace. There ain't no such thing as hyper grace. Like I shared last night. There's abundant grace. There's salvation grace. There's healing grace. There's provisional grace. Nowhere does it ever use grace in a negative. In the Bible, they don't have no right to attack grace. They say they're coming at the preacher. No, they're attacked in doctrinal grace if what the preacher is saying is truth. They're attacking biblical grace. But they think they're coming at the preacher. But even that is wrong. Okay? I'm charismatic, but I don't believe in everything the charismatics teach. But that doesn't mean I, well, I don't believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit anymore because I don't believe everything the charismatics teach. Yeah. No. We stand on the word of God, all right, and, uh, and when we see him face to face, then he'll, he'll uh, sort out all the rest of this stuff, right? But we cannot bash people that are bringing a word for a, for a the generation that needs that word, you see. Like I shared last night, God will always bring a word in a season, like I shared last night in the 70s, it was faith was brought as a word because the church was without faith. So God brought faith. Right before that, he brought the charismatic movement because the church was powerless. God brought in the 60s the charismatic movement. He got a revival of the charismatic movement. Then the, then the 70s and 80s was also a great teaching movement. You know, God brought just great teaching, you see. And now... In this season, God is emphasizing grace again because there's been so much legalism in the church. You see? You know, so much just legalism. It's like you have a clock. You know these granny clocks, right? How many know what a granny clock is? They have a pendulum, right? They have a pendulum. Okay. Now, here it is right now. Pendulum. People say, oh, we got to have balance. They're preaching too much grace. We got to have balance. There's balance. Guess what? Clock ain't working. Clock ain't working. Oh, that's balance. No, when there's a lack of something in the church, God will swing the pendulum. Then he'll come back the other way, you see, to bring the balance. But balance is not here. Clock ain't working. God will move in extremes to bring in lack. See, he will move in extremes to bring something into the church where we lack. And these last 15 years has been, especially the last 10 years, have been a time of God bringing 
grace to us Pentecostals because we needed this so bad. We were a performance-oriented Christian so much. You know, we, you know, we thought we were walking in grace, but we had guilt, we had condemnation, but yet when we, we always knew who we are in Christ, but it wasn't practical in our lives. But when a grace, I've always known grace from a 47 years, I was taught it, but yet I've had a revival of grace in my life because, because other teachings that I came under over 47 years gradually attacked that grace message. They were, it was a sneaky attack on that, you know, I'm complete in Christ, I'm secure in Christ. And you almost were ashamed to mention the world eternal security. Like I was an, uh, or I am an ordained Assembly of God minister. I'm a, you know, I have like three different ordinations. Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, Pastor Chuck Smith, and Assemblies of God of Great Britain uh, that I have my own nonprofit corporation in Kentucky for th- like 28 years. Okay, but the bottom line is this, like there's things that you reach out to get that which is lacking in your life, but we are to guard ourselves to not let attacked those areas of truth in our life that really are the foundation blocks of our Christian life. And grace was the foundation block of my Christian life. If it wasn't for the grace of God, I'd be off the rails. You know, I wouldn't even be able to stand up here and preach. I'd be dead. Or for the grace of God. Now, have I lived a Christian life for 47 years in, in sin? Absolutely not. But have I sinned as a Christian in 47 years? Absolutely. Have you? We don't practice sin. But folks, you know what grace does? Grace gives you speedy recovery. Speedy recovery. You know what guilt does? It keeps you mully going around or wallowing in the mire for years because you don't know how to get back to God because you don't know nothing about His grace. You see, grace gives you speedy recovery. You see, grace is a great motivator to, get, to come to God and immediately when something happens in your life. Amen? So, falling from grace has nothing to do with sin. Is having trying to make live a righteous life by keeping the law. That's falling from grace. And it's not talking about salvation grace. It could not be talking about salvation grace. He said, You've fallen from it, and because you're trying to keep the works of the law, and the Bible said, By the works of the law, nobody can be saved. So salvation wasn't the issue here. They were trying to be justified or saved by the works of the law. Impossible! So he's not talking about salvation grace here. He's talking about the benefit of God's grace. Now there is a salvation grace, but there's other graces in the Bible. Paul said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. He called me from my mother's womb by his grace, who was a murderer of Christians and a persecutor. And a religious man, but God called me from the womb by grace. God did not make no mistake. It just took me a while to get on board. Amen. When he saw young Stephen give his life for the gospel, when he consented to Stephen's death, and Stephen was stoned to death, 
And it said that Stephen stood up. They didn't knock him down with those stones. Read in the book of Acts, think around 8, 7, 8. They didn't knock him down with those stones. He knelt down and he stood up as they were stoning him to death. And Saul, who became Paul, they knocked one letter off of his name, Saul, and put a word, put a P on there, Paul. You know what Paul means? Little. It means little. So God changed the name from Saul to Paul, took the S off, put a P on there, his, give him a Gentile name, right? Because he was an apostle to the Gentiles, right? And he watched Stephen, face shone like an angel, said, hold not this sin to their charge, Lord. And his face shone like an angel. And Saul saw that. And he was converted onto Damascus Road. He gave that testimony many times in the book of Acts. You see, he was a law keeper. He was a Pharisee of a Pharisee. He was from the tribe of Benjamin. They were the faithful tribe. He was a Pharisee. His dad was a Pharisee. He was a law keeper. He knew the law to the letter. He said, but what was gained to me through religion and Judaism, I count but horse manure, is basically the word, for the excellency of Christ Jesus. I count as dung. All that stuff that gained through the law and religion, man-made religion, oracles, traditions of men, I count it as dung for the excellency of knowing God. And when he got saved on Damascus Road, God took Paul out to the desert for three years and taught him the gospel of grace. He said, I neither receive this from man or by man, but I receive this by direct revelation from God. What did he receive? The gospel of salvation by grace, not of works, lest any man should boast. That's what he received for three years. The same amount of time that Jesus spent with the disciples three years, the Holy Spirit took Paul out to the desert and taught him the gospel of grace. Isn't that lovely? It's all right there. Grace. Grace, grace, grace. Shout to your mountains. Grace, 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 just like Zechariah did. Abraham was declared righteous by faith 430 years before the law was ever given. Let's turn to Romans 4 real quickly. Romans, I think Romans 5. We're closing with this. We'll have ministry time here. Felt like teaching a little bit this morning. I hope I got a little preaching there too. But uh, it doesn't always have to be high pitched, does it, to be effective, does it? Romans 5. Verse 1, therefore, now you, when you see a therefore in the Bible, you find out what it's there for. 
It's a good principle. When you see a therefore in the Bible, you find out what it's there for. It's referring you back to what you just read in Romans, mainly four. All right, about by one man sin entered in, by one man seeing righteousness, all that. So therefore, because of this, okay, therefore, therefore, being justified. I love the word justified. Justified means just as if I never sinned. In other words, the slate has been clean. The chalkboard, everything has been erased. But you know, you know how these old chalkboards used to be? You used to erase all the stuff off the old black chalkboards. But there's always smudges and everything, weren't they? Always, there's no smudges. It's completely clean. The slate is clean. There's no smudges. There's nothing that would even resemble a sin that God did not take care of. Blessed is a man whose sin is not imputed against him. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. Bless his holy name, who forgives all my iniquities. How many? Who heals all my diseases. Heals all my diseases. Then he goes on to say, Blessed is the man whose sin is not imputed or taken into account against him. Man, that's, that's showing what Messiah was going to accomplish. That was, that's a prophetic psalm. Nobody was justified or forgiven in the Old Testament where their sins were not even remembered. I will remember your sins no more. That can only happen through the death, burial, and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. That cannot happen through the law. Uh, no remembrance of sin. If there was no remembrance of sin in the Old Testament, why did they have to go once a year, okay, on the Day of Atonement and offer up in the Holy of Holies, then why did the high priest have to go in every year? If there was a, no remembrance of sin when God forgave it in the Old Testament. No, God covered it. But forgiveness only came. True forgiveness when there was no remembrance when Messiah Jesus came and died, buried, and rose all right, and took the blood into the holy of holies. Now, therefore being justified, just as if I never sinned, by what? By faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Aren't you glad? You have peace with God. Yeah, you crush the enemy, folks, by peace. You don't beat him by... by Trying to do all this warfare, the, the, you know, it says that God of peace will crush Satan under your feet. Say the God of peace has crushed Satan under my feet. See, peace is the greatest, one of the greatest weapons against the war. Of course, you know, praise, and, but peace, maintaining peace in your hard times. Maintain the peace of God, okay, in hard times, amen? That's a great weapon against the enemy. It says, by whom also we have access, right? We have access by faith into this grace. Now what saves us? For by grace are you saved. Ephesians 2.8. For by grace are you saved. Through faith, that's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So by faith we are saved, but by grace we are saved through faith. Grace saves us, but 
Faith is the avenue to get to the grace. That's the channel. That's the vehicle that gets us into God's grace is faith. Oh, you mean I got to manufacture this faith so I can get to grace? The Bible says Jesus is the author and the finisher of our, of our faith. We cannot manufacture faith. Any faith that we have, it's a gift of God. Both salvation faith and, and growing faith. He's the author and the finisher of our faith. So, for by grace are we saved through faith. Now it says here that we're justified by faith, but, but we have access into this grace that saves us. Verse 2. It says, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand. And having done all to stand, what? Stand. Part of the armor of God. Having done all to stand, we stand. Putting on the whole armor of God. Having done all to stand, we stand. It says here, we stand. And not, it says, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand. Right? And rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. You see, you have entrance into grace by faith. But God gives us faith to get there. And I want to tell you, he gives us the faith to stay there, to stand there, to stay stood in the grace of God, to not move to the left or to the right from the grace of God. Come hell or high water. Okay, come all the lies of the enemy, all the lies of false teaching, I'm standing in the grace of God. I'm not moving out of the grace of God. Okay, to move out of the grace of God is to move out of Jesus. And grace is a person, it's Jesus. Okay, I'm in Christ, Christ is in me. Guess what? He's not going anywhere because he said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. And guess what? I'm not going anywhere. Believe me, there ain't nothing, there ain't nothing that we have done that's greater than the grace of God. That makes you not want to do it. Again, if you've done it. Amen? The grace of God.